0: What happens when your life begins to spiral? You notice all the warning signs, but you don't know what to do. My guest today has been through that experience, and he shares it with us here on this episode. Stay with us for Nick Wilson of The Resiliency Project. You are a warrior. You are the very best your nation has to offer. They're asking you. To leave. Five. We need a bear cat. It's up to us. So one thirty-three. I need somebody that's got a visual where the shooter is. You must be sound in mind, body, and spirit. 42, where's the officer down? I have a rescue helicopter that wants to land and help. This is the podcast that will make you the one. Copy, running eastbound. The one that will bring everyone back. I believe we have shot fired, shot fired. Give me back up now. Because no one else is coming. I have an officer shot, an officer shot. One hundred blocks of East Street. Suspect is down. Suspect is down.
1: This is the squad room.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Squad Room podcast, where we learn to serve, strive, and succeed in our challenging careers. My name is Garrett Tesla, I'm an active duty sergeant for a sheriff's office in Southern California, and I'm on a mission to build a world where first responders wake up inspired, feel confident at work, and go home safe knowing they've spent their time in a worthy cause. We have a great episode for today, but before we get to our guest, I want to remind you that you can support the show and rock some cool gear by visiting our apparel line at aworthycauselife.com, and please check us out on Facebook or Instagram at aworthycauselife. A couple of ways to stay connected to this podcast too, of course, to make sure you do get as much out of these episodes and as much value as you can. First off, uh, like our Facebook page and join our Facebook group of active and aspiring law enforcement professionals. Just search the Squad Room group on Facebook to join. And of course, follow me on Instagram at the Squad Room to keep up on the socials. If you're new to the show, thanks for joining us. If this is your first episode, please, I think you're going to, this is a great episode to be introduced to the show through. My guest today is Nick Wilson. Nick is the founder of The Resiliency Project. You can learn more about him on Instagram at the underscore resiliency project or on his website, theresiliencyproject.info. Nick does a great job of telling his story on the show and during the interview, so I'm not going to give it away here, but his story is terrifying and it's heartbreaking. It's also shocking. And I imagine that a lot of people, when they hear a story like this, their immediate reaction is to judge Nick and put distance between a situation like this and their own values and opinions. But if that's how you would normally approach a story about a cop who fell on hard times and began to self-destruct, I want to encourage you to listen closely and seek ways of understanding what he went through, because I think all of us can relate to this story in some way. And if we can relate to it, that means it could happen to us as well. So enjoy this interview with Nick Wilson of The Resiliency Project after this message. This episode is sponsored by Signature Coins. For months now, I've been looking for a way to say thank you to my guests and supporters. And after being involved in a major international incident recently, I was given quite a few challenge coins. And I was surprised at how much each of those meant to me. So I decided to make a squad room challenge coin to share with guests and supporters. I went searching for a company who could meet my high standards, but I was still nervous about making a purchase like this online. Most challenge coins you order these days are ordered online. Produced in a factory far, far away, and tracking down someone in customer service can be, well, a challenge. And I'll admit that I'm kind of old school, and I prefer to look someone in the eye when I'm about to spend that much money. So I delayed on a decision on a vendor for a long time, until I found Signature Coins out of Florida. Turns out, some of the guys at Signature Coins actually listened to the show. And when I contacted them, we connected immediately on our shared purpose of honoring this profession that I love so much. Daniel, Trey, Jeff, and all the other guys at Signature immediately put me at ease with making such a big purchase, and they bent over backwards to make sure that the coin I wanted that was in my head came out as a reality that I'm now holding in my hand. Now, if you're like me and you haven't drawn anything since it involved a crayon, have no fear. Signature Coins has 30 graphic artists on staff right in their Orlando office to help, and they don't charge a single penny to get your artwork ready for production. That is a big difference from other companies that often charge an artwork fee, or maybe you have to hire an outside designer. Signature Coins does all the art for free with no obligation to buy. They also have inclusive pricing, meaning that you're not going to get hit with a hidden upcharge at checkout, a 100% guarantee on their craftsmanship, and free next day shipping in the U.S. And their customer service team is right there in Orlando. Their turnaround is quick. About two weeks, which is super fast for coins. And like I said, free next day shipping when your coins are ready to go out the door. I couldn't be happier with my coins, and I couldn't be happier that I got them from Signature Coins. If you're looking to make a challenge coin of your own, you can find out more about them at SignatureCoins.com or email info at SignatureCoins.com, and Jeff will hook you up with a quote. If you use the coupon code THESQUADROOM, you'll get $50 off your first order. Learn more at SignatureCoins.com. Nick Wilson, welcome to the squad room. Thanks for being here, Nick.
2: Thank you very much for having me. Very grateful to be on your show, Garrett.
0: Oh, I mean, I'm excited to have you. We, uh, we connected up through, I don't know sure how originally, but you and I had a phone conversation like a couple weeks ago, probably a little bit more than that, a couple weeks ago. And, uh, you know, we talked for like 45 minutes uh, and we had a nice, really great conversation. And I just knew that you were a guy after that conversation. I knew you were a guy who I wanted to have on the show. And also a guy that was really out there in the parlance of my show being the one, you know, and and leading the way on a topic that is really, really important these days. Uh, And I'll let you talk here in a minute, I promise. But, you know, I'm I'm just thinking in anticipation of the episode today about, you know, we're approaching, we're at the end of the year. Um, There's like, I don't know if it's a thing, but COVID fatigue, you know. Of of dealing with it both at work and on the street and at home and for those of with those of us with kids dealing with, with the kids and their issues so I think this conversation is couldn't be more timely when we talk about resilience and we talk about it from the perspective of getting it back you know so that's why that's why I'm excited to have you on today
2: well thank you no you, all good points and excited to, to discuss so.
0: I wanted to start with your your story you you're uh, medically retired at this point from law yep. enforcement, but I was curious you know going back i loved I always loved to find out why did you get into law enforcement in the first place
2: well you know i always uh wanted to always be a soccer player when I was a kid, and uh that's uh quite unpopular I know in the United States, but I grew up playing soccer, <laughs> and uh when my mother was remarried. Uh, we moved to Northern California, and when I was up there, uh, I met a police officer. In fact, I was having a bad day after um, a day at high school, and this police officer named uh, Dave Porter from a small town that I lived in pulled up. My initial inclination was to think uh, he's going to come and harass me or something like that, but he came just to check to see how he's was doing. He let me look inside his police car, and... Um, Asked me if I ever wanted to be a cadet, and never gave it a thought or never considered that an option. And uh, I actually, be joined the the Explorer program when I was 15 years old, and really fell in love with the profession. Mm-hmm. I um, I rode along with you know police cars Friday and Saturday night every weekend, and knew that that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So went to the academy when I was 20 and uh, got hired shortly thereafter and started my police career.
0: So you, here in California, you have to be uh, 21 in order to uh, have your full peace officer powers. You, so you like started on day one of your eligibility.
2: <laughs> it, it was, uh, no,
0: I, I started, exactly. I graduated
2: in the academy when I was, uh, I went in when I was 20, I graduated when I was 21. And, um, yeah. it was mm-hmm. about 21 and a half or 22 is when I finally ended up getting hired. And that was at a community college district in San Diego before laterally up to Orange County.
0: Okay. And, and so you eventually lateral up into a, uh, an agency there. There's a, there's a ton of agencies in the LA area. You don't have to name your agency, but give us an idea of the size and the kind of the scope and then kind of the stuff you did while you were there.
2: Yeah. So it was, uh, it was an Orange County and population was approximately eighty, eighty-five thousand, uh, 85,000, about eight square miles and a small city, but busy city uh, that bordered and neighbored LA County agencies and had a great time when I was on patrol. Loved it. Loved the people that I worked with and was fortunate enough to go into the special investigations unit where I was working as a narcotic and gang detective and, uh, I stayed there, um, was able to be on the SWAT team. Uh, I was really, really fortunate to be a field training officer. And um, my career uh, got cut short based on physical injuries, but also beyond that were issues that I had to deal with from traumatic events that I saw and dealt with on the job that I never dealt with.
0: And so, how much time total from when you when you moved into that Orange County agency to when you eventually retired?
2: Um, I lateraled it in two thousand eight, and I retired at the end of twenty seventeen.
0: Um, so <clears throat> nine years, about nine years. Nine years, yeah. So, for people who aren't familiar, you know, with the LA area, because everybody thinks LA is one just giant glob of people, <laughs> but right. in that area, you have. Dozens and dozens of agencies, dozens and dozens of jurisdictional borders that meet up with each other. I mean, in an agency down there, you could deal with—not necessarily talking about your specific agency, but any agency down there—you know, you may deal with two or three other municipal agencies or county sheriff's departments in any given shift, given the, whatever border you might be on. Sure. Yeah. And yeah, and and your 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 criminal element there aren't just the locals, right? They come, right. they they cross those borders, so you're dealing with. A lot of of <laughs> Los Angeles's best criminals and Orange County's best criminals in that environment, and it's a hopping department, right? Right. Yeah. Um, I, I know we're not gonna do, we're not gonna say the department, but I know I know the department, and I know that they're humping it. They're busy. Yeah. And you know, uh, even the quote unquote. Now it's funny because in California, that's like a mid-sized to small agency. Sure. Uh, but in other parts of the country and other parts of the world, that's a massive agency to other people, you know? Yeah, <laughs> so sure, yeah. That... Yeah, so... having
2: originally started out at a small agency, um, to me at the time, it seemed, you know, it was huge. Um, yeah. But definitely busy.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, you know, nine years uh, across patrol and then special investigations, narcotics gangs, you're dealing with like legit gangsters down there, right. uh, legit narcotics movement, that sort of stuff. And, you know, you just you just touched on it. You brushed up on it about some medical issues and some injuries. Right. But there's those are the physical things. Those are those are physical things that happen to you. And and I've struggled with some of those too myself. Um, But what were the what are those other things that you're talking about?
2: Yeah. So, you know, when I started out uh, as a police officer or my career in law enforcement, I never considered or understood the psychological impacts, the impacts of trauma. That can be sustained um, from a profession law enforcement Um, and that's by and large due to the culture and so uh, for me I started noticing that I was dealing with a considerable amount of stress and trauma I didn't really know what was wrong with me other than I couldn't sleep and as a result of not being able to sleep for some reason uh, for the first time ever in my life. I knew that something wasn't right. I knew that, um, I was dealing with a lot of anxiety based on, um, a lot of things that were going on in my assignment and work. And after a while, my, my cup really became full and I can go into detail uh, about those things. But, um, you know, I started declining, and I really had no idea what was going on with me. And so, after uh, about a year of going through a sleep clinic and study at uh, my doctor, uh, I was eventually diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. And because of the stigma that exists in law enforcement, I was absolutely, um, I was mortified and I was embarrassed. And so things really
0: changed after that what yeah you you offered to dig in and i and you're you're always very open when i see you talk and when we talk what are the things that you were dealing with that <clears throat> sure. that either were obvious or or only in hindsight you sure. realized were, were the massive issues
2: yeah looking back on it now when i'm you know especially with what i'm doing now um You know, I'm pretty critical of myself, and I I often look back and think, you know, what could I have done? Or, but what I was going through was the lack of sleep uh, became very difficult, and one day would turn into two days, sometimes even three days of not sleeping. Um, I noticed that I started having nightmares. I noticed uh, that I started experiencing what I now know to be hypervigilance. um, Looking back on it, and based on the diagnosis and really looking back on how I was living and the way that I looked at life, the way that I viewed the world, I um, then became very withdrawn and I started isolating in my personal life and in my professional life. And so, um, you know, after a couple of surgeries uh, from injuries that I got from working, uh, I started taking Norco's narcotic pain medication and somas. And at the end of my sleeping treatment, uh, when they finally diagnosed me with post-traumatic stress, uh, they started prescribing me benzodiazepines. Uh, and so that was the first time that I'd ever taken a benzo uh, or knew, And even though I was working narcotics, um, you know, it's like, I didn't know what the consequences would be for long-term use of that. Um, I just thought that I was at that time invincible and I could handle it, but unfortunately I became chemically dependent after a while, and uh, between my inability to cope with traumatic events or critical incidents that were just boiling over, things I'd never dealt with, I began to um, self-medicate. That's how I became chemically dependent, which really compounded my sleeping problems. Um, you know, typically we start self-medicating, um, and, you know, we, we think it takes the edge off or we start having some drinks, but it really became problematic when that was my only way of coping and dealing with the stressors that I was experiencing on the job. So as a result of that, I ended up, um, becoming so, uh, dependent on medication and drinking when I would run out of medication that I ended up getting in my car one night when I was uh, working on a task force. And this was shortly after the San Bernardino terrorist attack. I ended up crashing into a fence. I totaled my car and I received a DUI. And that single handedly changed the ballgame for me in my life. And that was in twenty sixteen. You want me to elaborate? So obviously,
0: yeah. So Yeah, yeah, we'll 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 dig into each part of this because I think that there's there's lessons to be learned and teased out of each portion of this, right? And so I think I think any cop with the, more than a day on understands the difficulty of sleeping or the end. And How challenging that can be. I mean, if you're a new guy, usually you're put on the graveyard shift, right? Or on the worst shift available, which usually involves darkness. And yeah. sure, and your body's just not meant for that. Yeah. And I'd also just think we are really just now in the last five years or so understanding how much sleep is disrupted by the stress and that hyper vigilance you talk about, sure. And so you know a lot of us go into it thinking we're young we're in good shape i'm good to go right and we just chalk it up to the fact that we're trying to sleep in the middle of the day when the gardeners are here or the kids right. are at home or you know whatever else is going on in the world and we push down or ignore the the other warning signs that are out there right and and so i'm curious with cuz cuz hindsight being 2020 20, right you probably didn't see these things at the time but mm-hmm. the the inability to sleep what was that the result of for you do you think
2: I think it's from untreated trauma I think mm-hmm. it's cumulative stress and trauma that I was experiencing uh, on the job <clears throat> I think it it was a lot of different factors um you know I was involved in and I was grateful to be involved in these investigations that, you know, taught me a lot. And I worked with the amazing crew, um, usually with uh, different agencies as well. But it was during these times that, you know, my, my trauma started in patrol. Um, and I think that when I look back at the entire uh, sequence of events, you know, I have to look at the culture and I have to understand, you know, for myself when I was going through my own recovery, you know, how, how did this whole thing happen? How, how did someone who was very resilient, uh, and, uh, a type, a, uh, type of personality, how did I lose everything? How did I go down the drain? And so quickly without being able to stop it. Um, and so you know, law enforcement is a very peer driven environment and you have to rely on your peers for survival purposes. But in that there is a lot of judgment and there is, um, you know, you you, you look to your peers for survival and there's a constant analysis and uh, there's a constant, I would say, It's just a very judgmental environment, and you're you're mm-hmm. constantly trying to prove to your peers through whether it's the academy or field training um, or getting into a special assignment, you're constantly having to prove yourself. And that's fun, and that's part of the profession. However, it also creates this this environment where stigma is very real. And so each time I responded to a critical incident or was involved in a critical incident or... Uh, any of my partners were. I remember distinctly, if one of my partners asked if I was okay, I'd say, Yep, I'm good. And vice versa. And I didn't realize until later, until later, how dangerous that is. Uh, Because I think what happened with me was, I was going through a lot. And I constantly looked around me to see if anyone else was experiencing what I was experiencing. Mm -hmm. And because of the stigma, and for by, by and large, we all kind of just look at our partners and say, you know, yep, I'm good. Um, you start to feel invalidated, you know, and a lot of the research, or you know, I'm not a clinician, but a lot of the research that I cite comes from Dr. John Violanti, who's written a lot of books on police trauma. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things I learned is that from the academy, the onset of things, uh, the, law enforcement traditionally has had to create police officers that are feel invincible. They have to go into unknown scenarios and situations on a daily basis and go into them expecting a positive outcome. And when that illusion of invulnerability is shattered later in a police officer um, or deputy sheriff's career, anyone in law enforcement or the first responder community, it is incongruent with what we've always known. And so for me, I started becoming more and more vulnerable in my career. Um, meaning that I, as time passed, stopped feeling this Superman complex that I was invincible. And the reality that I was vulnerable to the symptoms of post-traumatic stress, it went against everything I ever understood previously, Mm -hmm. which caused me to isolate and to feel very embarrassed. And I think a combination of experiencing that, not knowing who to turn to or how to seek help, started a pathway of maladaptive coping, um, high-risk behavior, and emotionally distancing myself completely, not just physically from my family, but you know, emotionally, and doing everything I could to just check out. And so I think that's... Uh, where it all started for me, because, you know, aside from the sleeping issues and the anxiety, it was almost as if every new traumatic event or stressful scenario that I was experiencing at work re-traumatized past critical incidents that I'd never dealt with, leaving that area of untreated trauma, a very dangerous place, if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, totally. And you touched on a couple of good points. One I want to go back to before I, I want to make sure I touch on, you know, the, the, when the, you know, something happens and the partners look at each other and you good? Yeah, I'm good. How many hundreds of times a day does that happen across the country or any country?
2: Yeah, unfortunately,
0: too much, right? And, and I, and I equate that sometimes, and it's, it's well intentioned, I think, right? But it's also in a way, Kind of like when you, you pass someone on the street and, you, you know, you just kind of involuntarily say, how you doing? Right. And you expect the answer to be fine. Right. Or good or some version of that. And they respond, how are you? Fine. Thank you. And you move on. Right. And right. you may never see this person again. And the expectation through social norms is that they don't unload their life on you when you ask how you doing. Right. <laughs> so, we don't really want to know you know, we're, we're being polite and we're being nice when we say, how you doing? Good. And I think sure. internally, we all think just, just subconsciously we think, Oh, phew, good. They didn't, uh, they didn't unload on me with their, their drama. Right. And right. you move on about right. your day. Sure. We do the same thing in that exact same scenario. When we look at our partners and say, you good. Cause right. just there in the question, you know, what if Absolutely. you're not? And, and, and what if, what if the, you know, just the tone and everything else about that question, is prompting you to answer, yeah, I'm good, I'm fine, I got this. And so how would you want someone to ask that question of you? Like if you could go back in time and to get someone to really get to the core of it and and to give you the courage to to speak to that truthfully, how would they ask that question? That's a great question. I
2: know that um, – You know, there were people that, at times, asked me if I was if I was okay, uh, if I was good. Uh, there were people who saw changes in me over time. I don't know if they could have done anything different at the time. I do know now that you know you if if I could go back in time. And I saw someone who was struggling. I would do everything i I could to pull them aside and say, "You know, "Hey, brother or sister, uh how are you doing what what are you feeling what what What's going on with you?" Um, I noticed some changes in you, and no judgment whatsoever. Just want to know how I can help kind of thing. When you approach it and ask a question that's not just a yes or no." Um, mm-hmm. how are you feeling? I know that this becomes, you know, pe- people roll their eyes, but you know, uh, I think that the profession has become so incredibly difficult and law enforcement officers, not just in California, but across the country are struggling and dealing with so much right now that it might be worth it to spend a little Extra time checking on your partners. You know, I, I um, it's kind of like what you're talking about. It's almost like an involuntary response, right? It's like muscle memory. It's just, yep, fine, I'm good. Mm-hmm. But I think we have to start, in my opinion, as a culture, do more to try to check on our partners, those especially that um, we see factors or, you know, behavioral changes that might be indicative of some sort of you know trauma whether it's in their behavior or you know absenteeism Mm -hmm. or so i think um you know to be honest i don't know if someone could have changed my response at the time because of Mm -hmm. the stigma and how powerful the stigma was Mm -hmm. i just know that there's a lot more we could do in terms of addressing it and, and asking probing questions where we're not letting our partners feel as though we're judging them, right? Um, and the safer our police officers feel in speaking about their struggles, the more of an opportunity we have to help them cope with untreated trauma
0: yeah i mean i i imagine you'll agree with this idea that you know what what we it's it's almost a, without question that if you're in the in the profession that you have some element of the ability to be courageous sure. and many 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 of my partners have have done very extremely courageous things that involve some sort of feat of you know physicality or mental strength that you know has made the news or given them an award or saved a life or all these things that cops are known for doing that are courageous. But I think the one thing we could do to really be better to each other is the willingness to have courageous conversations. Absolutely. And being especially incumbent on anyone who considers themselves to be a leader to be willing to ask difficult questions but take it from the the point of being courageous and and seeking to help your fellow officer find the courage to talk you know so it comes down to questions like are you sleeping how's the drinking have you and your wife gone on a date recently or how, how how are things at home how are your kids doing right and having conversations like that if 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 we can get more people who are in leadership positions and listen to this show, I consider anyone who listens to this to be a leader. Sure. Uh, these people into a converse to be able to have the courage that they have on the street and put that into a conversation with a partner that you would die for. Right. I mean, right. these are people we have agreed that we would go out and, and step in front of a bullet for, Absolutely. Uh, but at the same time, with that insane amount of courage that we all agree on, explicitly implicitly none of us are willing to have those tough conversations right and 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 so that's where that starts to me Absolutely.
1: that that's where i
0: think we we start is is we start with ourselves and being willing to be the one to ask hard questions of our friends
1: agreed and it it is almost as though you know when you really think about it in lines of exactly what you're saying um, our officers abandon, like I did. You know, we we abandon ourselves. We we're always there for our partners. We're there for strangers in the community that we don't even know, right? Uh, and so, being able to sacrifice so much for others instead of looking inward and being there for yourself is something that we have to start to acknowledge. And mm. you know, for me, I, I believe that there are a lot of different things that can be done to change the culture. But I think so much of it, when we're talking about officer wellness, we have to look at our law enforcement leaders and we look to them from an organizational standpoint uh, for their leadership in setting a note, a new tone um, that initiates or supports or promotes um, anything having to do with wellness and getting rid of stigma, because when that happens, you create a culture in your agency that normalizes the process of seeking help. It's so easy for us, isn't it? To get a physical injury and be out for a few weeks or a month to recover from that. But when it comes to a psychological injury, it is, an uncomfortable thing because of the profession and the stigma. Mm-hmm. A police officer self-template com, uh, is, is a uh, one that is typically uh, points towards justice and benevolence. You know, there's, they're inher- inherently good. Of course there's bad apples and those people should be weeded out. They don't deserve to wear the badge, but you know, our, our officers uh, have a, um, role in making sure that they're there for everybody else. It becomes part of the lifestyle and between that and the fear of potentially feeling inadequate amongst your peers, Mm -hmm. if you're not okay, is the, you know, the debacle (laughs) in law enforcement. Mm -hmm. So how do we change that? How do we, how do we change the culture? For me, I was so embarrassed. Um, of ever discussing or talking about anything that was bothering me because I would have felt at the time, I remember distinctly thinking that others, whether it's my family or my partners would lose faith in me. Um, And, and that's a a very dangerous way of thinking because Mm -hmm. it's, it's absolutely um, to me, it's insane to think, The police officers who have to deal with the worst um, in our society seeing people on their worst day experiencing critical incident after critical incident cumulatively the compassion fatigue the adrenal fatigue the stress hormones that are you know depleting our bodies there are multiple factors that change the way that we <clears throat> operate. And um, I think that if we start looking at psychological injuries um, as a physical injury, it's a good starting point to be had. Mm-hmm. And this isn't just about suicide preven- prevention. This is about you know the alarming stats that we see with divorces and substance abuse and alcoholism and law enforcement. And that leads to the vicarious trauma that bleeds into the family home life and oftentimes deteriorates and destructs um, the, the family structure, which is, you know, absolutely devastating because we know that the best way to heal from post-traumatic stress uh, is from community. It's from your social structures, your family structure, that kind of support it's not found in a medication it's not found in a band-aid or it's not found while isolating or numbing yourself out it's found in community and self-care
0: and so go ahead no i i I don't want to stop you sorry but um i want to talk about you recovering all that but i want to go back real quick and to and touch on two questions i had um because i'm just curious you know so you know, you talk about being out in the street and going to critical incidents, but was your situation where you have a defined, like, you know, the event that caused or tripped your PTSD or was it a cumulative issue?
1: Yeah, that's a very good point.
0: Um, I
1: think that, I think it's both. Okay. Because I think, you know, from what we know from post-traumatic stress, it can be cumulative. It can be, um, you know, one specific event. For me, while I was working as a detective, uh, I was working white supremacy organizations and uh, they issued a green light to kill me. I started dealing with the impacts of that. That case lasted quite a few years and so there was a constant feeling of hypervigilance constant mm-hmm. feeling of being in a threat zone from unknown you know circumstances and that's a that prolonged exposure to hypervigilance coupled with a significant amount of traumatic events from my past that you know culminated after several years uh i think after the threat that was my boiling point, and that's when I became most self-destructive. So, had I caught it on earlier, had I changed things earlier, my the outcome of my life probably would have been different. Um, so, it, you know, it's I always tell officers when I speak to them now, you know, there there is absolutely no shame in getting help. It, it, we we're, we're not we can't repeat our patterns as a law enforcement community, as we have in our past. We have to create a new environment, in my opinion, if I may say so, to allow officers to feel safe in coming forward to get help. And that Mm -hmm. doing so is a sign of strength, not weakness. Mm -hmm. Not not whatsoever. And so, in fact, I actually spoke to a, a gentleman a few hours ago who went to treatment, um, bo- both for you know, trauma and for chemical dependency, he was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress, and is back at his agency and working. Uh, this is far more common than we might think. Of course, it has to do with agency culture, but uh, you know, just because you have a psychological injury doesn't mean it's the end. It's when we wait too long to get the help that we need. The more we wait, the more we lose. And, um, you know, I retired on my my back, my arm um, from injuries that I sustained that, um, you know, affect me daily. But it was the psychological trauma, the untreated trauma, that really changed the course of events for me in my life. And so I wish I would have done more to change it. I can just do as much as I can now to try to help change it for others.
0: In ancient Rome, soldiers would step into battle to fight for the empire. But they also had bills to pay and family back home to support. Doesn't that sound familiar? Well, if soldiers performed well in battle, they would be paid in gold coins. If they performed with exceptional valor, they would be given an extra coin. Legend has it that this coin was often minted with the name and symbol of the legion in which they served and that soldiers would hold on to these coins as proof of their bravery. This made their coins a prized possession. Throughout history, unique coins have been part of nearly every warrior tradition. There's a story from World War I in which an American pilot was held captive as a German POW and stripped of all of his personal identification. He escaped the POW camp but was detained by the French who thought he was a German spy. He carried with him a coin with a symbol that one of the French soldiers recognized as that of an American squadron. The coin saved his life. Challenge coins remain an important part of this warrior tradition, including those in law enforcement and the other first responder professions. Signature Coins out of Orlando, Florida is my choice for Challenge Coins for the squad room. Their staff of artists can create and make most any design a reality, and their quality is top-notch. The people at Signature Coins are complete professionals like you, and they take their jobs seriously. Quality is their priority, and I can tell you that it shows in the Squadroom coins that I ordered from them. You can check out their handiwork on my Instagram at The Squadroom. For more information or to get a free quote with no artwork fee, check out their website at SignatureCoins.com. If you use the coupon code The Squadroom, you can get $50 off your first order. That's SignatureCoins.com. Now, back to the show. Yeah, I want to not to. To continue on this path, but I just think this is so crucial for people to understand how this begins, um, and so you know, I think I think anyone understanding that you get greenlit, everyone gets like understands the stress of a, something like that, sure, and what that what you would go through. <clears throat> but I'm curious. I guess I have hours and hours of questions, but but <laughs> but I'm curious about what were you know at the time that you got the diagnosis what were you doing in terms of your physical health and your uh, mental health that you thought were either you thought you were doing the right things to be preventative or that you were doing to relieve the stress or what do you realize you should have been doing at the time sure so first i I never had a hobby
1: ever i never had anything else other than law enforcement that gave me purpose which is not healthy whatsoever
0: yeah no no i
1: identified with the job I, the badge was my identity. And so outside of law enforcement, there was nothing else that I did that I truly, truly loved. I did exercise, especially when <clears throat> I was you know, on the team. I was exercising and, you know, working out, watching my, my nutrition, but things changed after the injuries. But when I thought that I was starting to get healthier from the injury before my, my arm injury, Um, I noticed that I just stopped working out and on my days off, I became isolated. I never considered anything having to do with self-care, believing or understanding that it could have made a difference. I never subscribed to going to therapy because I thought it would be weak of me. Um, It's not even something that I understood. So there, there were a lot of factors. What I was doing when I started to slip to the point where um, it became very concerning was that I started self-medicating. I didn't know how to deal with the rigors of the job, the pain of the job, Uh, and what I was seeing and what many of my partners were seeing. I just just couldn't, after a while of not dealing with it, I, I couldn't deal with it anymore. And so the only way that I knew how to survive was by self-medicating, um, and I knew, I knew when I became chemically dependent. I remember what that was like. I remember feeling uh, deathly afraid of the fact that uh, <laughs> I wasn't going to have a good outcome, and I didn't know how to get help, and I didn't know how to do so in a way that would preserve, you know, my job, and so, you know. I want it to be known that this was all my fault, right? I can't, you can't blame this on any, anybody else. I'm the one that chose to um, put anything in my mouth or drink anything to numb myself out. But looking back, I wish I I would have had more purpose outside of the profession. I wish that I would have had a more well-balanced life, uh, that I would have put more emphasis on self-care, that I would have done more to uh, take care of my mental health to protect it, because it's um, it's unimaginable for anybody to assume that a police officer could go through the the kinds of trauma that police officers have to go through, in in serving their communities, without being unscathed psychologically. Um, you know, I became very cynical. I stopped having faith in society. Uh, the way that I saw the world. Um, my role within it, I didn't have long-term goals that I really, really believed in at the time because I just was trying to live day by day. And so um, it's difficult to discuss because, uh, you know, I know that there are a lot of people out there right now that are hurting and don't know where to turn or, or how to get help. And the only thing I can say is, you know there are a lot of options out there, and that doing so only defines you as a
0: warrior. You know? Well, well, well put. Um, so you you pass. It sounds like you you're you're, you're self aware of the spiral you're in, right. but you don't know how to pull up on that yoke to you know right. to kind of level out. And so it's almost like you foresaw the implosion that eventually occurred, uh, literally into a fence, when you totaled your car. Right. And a DUI that resulted. And what was, was that the wake up moment where everything changed and everything shifted or did it take longer until you realized that you couldn't do this anymore? No, I knew,
1: I knew the second it happened and I've said it before. Um, you know, I, I distinctly remember after the crash thinking to myself, um, "It my my first thought was, you know,
2: not to thank God that I I'm still alive or uninjured. It wasn't to thank God that I didn't hurt anybody. My first thought was, everyone's going to know it's it's over, mm. and that's powerful because the stigma of in law enforcement is is so strong. Uh, it might not be, you know." experienced by everybody. But by and large, stigma is very prevalent. Yeah. <laughs> I so I knew from that point forward, especially because I had my son at the time, um, who was born and at home, Meaning, meaning he wasn't with me, but you know, he had come into the world and I needed to be the best father I could be, I knew I needed to get help. I just didn't know what that meant. And it was scary
1: as hell, because there was an intervention at my home by some friends, colleagues, and family members at the time, and I uh,
2: I went into treatment um, a few weeks after the crash, and it took a lot of different factors, but the strongest one I could say was the sergeant who was the arresting sergeant that night. Um, pulled me aside. I was completely broken down and apologizing for crashing and putting uh, his officers in a position to arrest me. I was ashamed of myself, and I distinctly remember him saying to me as he pulled me aside that I needed to ask for help. It's okay. He knew of my situation before, but this was the first time that I had ever met him. And it was in that context of a sergeant who was very distinguished in his career, telling me that it was okay to get help. And so it made it a lot easier and acceptable for me, a couple weeks later, during the intervention, for me to say yes. And his name is Chuck Dominguez. And grateful that just um, a few years later, You know, he is on my board for the resiliency project. And um, so for me, um, I feel like I watched myself spiral, was lying to myself, telling me that I was going to be okay and would get through it. But it was an excuse, and it took a lot of loss for me to be able to start A pathway or a journey of healing and that happened that happened after the DUI and um, I shortly uh, after the uh, intervention that night I went into treatment it took seven days to detox off of everything and I spent 30 days there an inpatient which is where I met a bunch of other police officers who were also in inpatient treatment with me from different agencies that was the first time I ever thought, "Wow, I'm not alone." <laughs> this is a little bit more common than I thought. And after that, I went to a trauma re- retreat called WCPR up in Northern California, which changed my life. Um, so there's a lot in that, to-
0: Yeah, there's, um, and the, the the West West was it West Coast Post Trauma Retreat? Is that what it is? Yeah,
2: yeah West which- yeah WCPR West Coast Post Trauma Retreat.
0: Post Trauma Retreat, which is run by Joel Fay. Uh, It is partially run by Joel Faye, who who was a guest, one of my first guests, actually on this show. Yeah, he's a great Uh, guy. He is and a great guy, great leader, police psychologist, former police officer himself. Right. Um. You know, I'm when I hear your story, and you know, really, there are many similar stories out there. Like you said, you went into rehab and realized that you weren't the only one there. Sure. I think the first, you know, there's a saying that uh, if you find yourself deep in a hole, the first thing you got to do is to stop digging. Right. <laughs> and and stop making the problem worse. Right. And, you know, after a DUI arrest, I see that there's two paths that you could possibly take or any person could possibly take. One is you just double down on that shame and that anger and that fear mm-hmm. and you just shut everybody off and you drink yourself away or, or overdose. Or sure. you accept... You accept the help, but in order to accept the help, you have to stop the digging and you have to take uh, at least some sort of self-assessment. What was the first, what was the first thing you did to stop digging?
2: Well, it came down to my son. You know, my son was just uh, a year and a half, two, uh, about a year, year and a half and he was my reason for living he was my reason for everything and so I put him at the focal point of everything that I did um, because I didn't want to have the kind of father that I had growing up I didn't want to be an absentee father I didn't want to be checked out when he came into the world I you know I, I was I had, had depleted so much I'd deteriorated so much I, I wasn't even responsive for um, lots of you know, times during the first year of his life. And so, you know, I just, for me, I just, I was tired of suffering. There's just a lot of pain and suffering in the law enforcement profession with varying degrees, you know, people work at different places and, you know, there's different environments, but by and large, being in law enforcement is a very difficult profession. It's inherently, you know, one of the most difficult jobs on the planet. And, and so I had to find my reason, my purpose. And, and for me, it was my son. For others, you know, I, I've heard tons of amazing stories of recovery and resilience and, you know, the fortitude that it takes to start a path of healing. And, you know, when you can find purpose for changing and living, it can change the ball game and I think that it took a lot during my recovery and understanding how to implement and practice self care. I know it sounds crazy, but to understand mindfulness, um, mindfulness meditation, all of these different things that have helped me. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't live in the same way that I used to. And it, I always tell people as well, you know, we can't think of healing and by believing in some sort of utopia where there's like this end goal it's like a constant daily practice and some days are much more difficult than others and that's okay as long as you can catch yourself and you can respond more effectively based on how much you know of yourself and how you know by identifying what's bothering you and responding in a manner that is not self-destructive for me, it took a lot of practice, but I, I I couldn't. I knew that I couldn't go backwards, or I'd lose my son. So that was my reason. Um, mm. I wish it. You know, at the time, you know, everyone says, "Well, you know, you got to do it for yourself, no, for no one else." But you know, when you don't have hope, you you got to cling on to something. And I I say, you know what? Just cling on to something, <laughs> because yeah. uh, you know, the, p- trauma work and healing there's no script for this there's not Uh, because there's then personal life and the personal stressors in everyone's lives that also exasperate the stressors that people experience on the job there's childhood trauma there's a lot of different factors and so the more emphasis placed on um, self-care and healing and these things the more effective you can become you know do you
0: think? after going through rehab and then going through the the west coast post-trauma retreat after all that do you think you had an alcohol and drug problem or you had a trauma problem that showed up as an alcohol and drug uh outlet or activity Great, great
2: question great question that you know have a whole nother segment into the treatment industry for first responders and culturally competent clinicians. Right. But, um, so initially I was like, um, I definitely drug and alcohol problem, which kind of was inconsistent with what I, you know, my everything told me like, I'm not an alcoholic, but I had to essentially believe or understand, you know, when you go into treatment, the first thing that you say is, Hi, my name is Nick and I'm an alcoholic. But it just seems so crazy to me because after I detoxed, um, although I was feeling everything for the first time because I was clear and didn't have any medications or alcohol in my body, um, you know, it was more difficult to talk about things because I wasn't emotionally numbing out, but I didn't have a need to emotionally numb out. I, I understood that it was going to be difficult and I had to push through. Um, and I just had to do so in a way that I didn't understand before. And I had to learn tools to do it at the end of the day for me. Um, no, I don't have a drug and alcohol problem. It was untreated trauma that led to chemical dependency through maladaptive coping. It was all about uh, my inability to cope because I didn't have the, the techniques or the strategies to do it. And I became chemically dependent. And when that happened, especially with the, you know, the benzodiazepine, um, that, that led to my eventual downfall. There's a lot I could have done, and, and I didn't because it was so foreign to me at the time. Mm. But there's a lot our officers can do so that they don't find themselves in the same predicament that I found myself in, which eventually cost me everything and the loss of my family. Um, you know, At the time, I, my wife, she asked for divorce and left with my son. And so <clears throat> I had to rebuild my whole life. And, um, I put my son first and I had to think that way every single day and every day that I did, although it was difficult, um, I started seeing more clearly and, you know, here we are now on the, your awesome podcast. (laughs) So I never thought I'd be here or, you know, teaching or having awesome colleagues that I work with every day. But, um. There is hope.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's hope, and 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 so let's talk about that. You've you now have started as part of your mission and part of your own recovery, the Resiliency Project. Yeah, and p- people can learn more about that at the ResiliencyProject.info. Um, but talk about what your mission is now, and also what you're teaching other people to do that you're using to be successful in the aftermath of it. Sure.
2: Um, and thank you for asking. So the Resiliency Project is a nonprofit organization and our, our mission is to end the silent suffering of our nation's first responders and provide peer support and funding for treatment, whether it's recovery or psychological services um, in an effort to treat post-traumatic stress, build resilience and, and end suicide uh, of our first responders. So, for us, um, you know, we, we take peer support calls um, when first responders go through the website in the event that they don't feel comfortable going to their own agency or utilizing their own agency's peer support, or maybe they don't have one. And so we have um, peer supporters on our team uh, that are awesome. And we also, um, I teach a, a wellness course for post and that's a peer driven course that um, I just started and actually being hosted at uh, the Chino Police Department. Uh, the next three classes, uh, we just had a couple there. And uh, this is about stigma, this is about leadership in law enforcement, uh, how to change the culture um, from a psychoeducational standpoint, how to understand the symptoms and signs of PTSD or PTSI, as I like to say, because it is a psychological injury, and um, the more we can inspire officers to start speaking from line level to command staff, the more of an opportunity that we have to change the culture, uh, because it goes against everything that we've ever done before, right? We we just typically say nothing and everything is all good, and these are principles that I've adhered to that I learned at, at WCPR. Um, that's where my true healing journey began. And so being fortunate to have been a, a you know, former law enforcement officer and having the experiences that I've had, um, I'm grateful in that I've been able to connect with officers during the class who have had same, the same experiences that I've had or have struggled in any capacity. And they know that when they're in the class that they're safe and that there's no judgment and that it is peer driven. And, um, you know, the point of it is to get people talking and to see things from a different perspective. And I think that that is different from a different type of instructor. Um, and so I'm grateful for that. It, um, I'm grateful to be able to connect with, you know, it's not just it's dispatchers, it's correctional officers, it's, um, line level all the way up to, you know, chiefs and sheriffs. And so I see a lot of change in the culture happening, and that is more inspiring than ever. And there's a lot of work to be done. However, I do see change happening uh, incrementally. And I just hope that, uh, especially with everything going on now, that the rest of the country can start to um, follow suit. Unfortunately, there are a lot of agencies and pockets of the country that are very, very far behind in terms of wellness. And I've heard, you know, very difficult things that have. Mm -hmm.
0: uh, Oh, yeah. I wish I didn't hear. You know, I want to point out something, too, because you just you touched on it. But you mentioned Sergeant Chuck Dominguez, who was there at the scene of your arrest the night you crashed your car. And he's now on the board of your foundation, which I think is a great show of support. and uh says volumes about the man and his willingness to not to not um write someone off for for a bad decision which i think cops often are very quick to do you know we we write off the criminals and that's okay but we often write off our own at times absolutely but on top of the fact that you had sergeant dominguez involved here you mentioned that chino the chino police department here in california um is hosting the class and has hosted the class and explain why that's cool (laughs) well
2: that's cool because that's the that's the agency that arrested me and um and the fact that they would you know as you're saying these things and speaking it chokes me up even now which i feel comfortable saying because i get very emotional in the class especially when i'm telling my story Mm -hmm. um because i never thought that i would be here uh, and never thought that a day would come where i would ever step foot inside of the Chino Police Department, or any department. You know, I believe that I was shunned from the law enforcement community. And so how grateful can I, am I? I mean, I'm, uh, you know, Chuck is like a brother to me uh, under the leadership of um, Wes Simmons at Chino PD and uh, Nick Murata, Chuck Dominguez. Um, These people are very forward thinking in their strategies to implement wellness programs. And so they've given me a shot. And I've met a lot, countless other leaders, um, not just in California but around the country, who are of the same mindset, which is inspiring to see. And the other members of the Resiliency Project, um, you know, Jeff and Adam Grugel, just awesome police officers. Um, you know, Chuck Dominguez, uh, Jaime, uh, who I don't want to say his last name because he, he works UC Operations and Human Trafficking uh, Task Force. Um, Jeremy Cross, um, our admin team, who are either first responders themselves or spouses of law enforcement. These people are so dedicated, and um, I'm blessed to have a team of colleagues who are absolutely selfless and believe and understand the impacts of trauma that our law enforcement officers go th- through and are non judgmental. And I credit so much of this to my brother Chuck and uh, everyone else who's been on the team to help because I would not be here if it were not for, if it were not for any of them. So, uh, you know, and, and to be honest, it's inspiring to hear you being a law enforcement um, officer and sergeant in the sheriff's department who is highlighting these things. I mean, it's not just me or our team. I mean, it, this is it takes a community it takes a village. And so, you know, it's great to hear that you're using your platform to, you know, discuss the most relevant issue, in my opinion, in law enforcement today, which is wellness and leadership. You know, how how do we change our culture? Because things do have to change.
0: Yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And it just goes right to what I was saying at the beginning of our talk here where, you know, this has been a hell of a year for everybody and, You It just, it's either exacerbated an existing problem for many people or it's presented an entirely new problem people never expected that they had, would have to deal with.
2: 100%. And so,
0: yeah, every person who's wearing a badge right now has gone through some significant events this year. Not necessarily okay. traumatic, but I would, I'm willing to bet if you've been in the job and you've done your shifts that you've experienced traumatic things and you may have processed them. Well, you may not have, but everything else is compounded in this year. And I feel it too. And I get emails all the time from people who feel it too. And yeah. if we don't t- put light on it, if we don't put sunlight on it, we're never going to fix it. Exactly. Right. And, and not only are we never going to fix it, I'm never going to solve it for myself or anybody else and and the the mission I'm on is to is to make sure that we each have all the information we possibly can to be as successful as we possibly can Absolutely. and i get to benefit from talking to people like you who you know every conversation we've had i, I i've left inspired by your willingness to be completely open and vulnerable and then not only not only open to the what you've experienced and and but then turning around and helping the next person uh through the resiliency project and i think i think that's what's missing so often in these stories we hear someone who's done something uh you know they screwed up but they're on the mend but how Um, can we how can we 10x the result in that and we do that by telling the story and we do that by going out there like you are and and teaching the classes and i think it's just an awesome show of respect from Chino PD that they have you and they're hosting the classes that they are. So, you know, I want people to to learn more about you, Nick, and learn about your project. Where can people go to learn more about, about you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. They can go to the resiliencyproject.info. We're going to be coming out with a awesome new website here in the next couple of weeks, but people can go there there to uh, request support or see what we're about and um they can also go to our instagram which is um at the uh, let's see what what is it Uh, the underscore resiliency project and um check us out there i i i told you that i never had a uh, a hobby or a passion and part of my self-care work uh, sometimes uh, is to i learned how to make videos and Initially, I started making videos when my my family left about my son because I missed him, and I decided that I was going to start a, an Instagram before I even started the Resiliency Project as a as a nonprofit. I'm making videos about mental health and law enforcement issues, uh, and so those are the videos that I make just on my phone that we put on the Instagram profile that people can check out, and. Uh, we're always here, twenty four seven, to help our first responders with anything that they need. So
0: that's fantastic, yeah. and we'll put uh, links in the show notes, of course, for this too, so people can go to thesquadroom.net dot net and uh, find your information. We'll have Great. it there. Thank Nick, thanks for your time. Thanks for being on the sh- your being on the show and and just your honesty and and your willingness to step out there. I talk on this show often, if not all the time, about the importance of being the one, you know, and how, how it's incumbent on all of us in our own lives, wherever we are to be the one, the one that people look to the one that leads in front, the one that shows the way the one that sets the example. And I just think you're a fantastic uh, uh, example of someone who's out there being the one. So thanks for being with well, us.
2: Well, thank you for that. And likewise, that, that goes both ways. And because you know, you're creating a, a platform for these discussions that are invaluable to be had and for it just to reach one person out there hopefully um you know you're 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 providing that that avenue so thank you for your leadership and all that you're doing to add value to this conversation
0: it's my honor all right thanks for listening to this episode with nick wilson if you want to know how you can support the show there's a few ways you can do that if you like what you heard today and if you got something out of this conversation please consider leaving a review on the podcast player of your choice Please also leave a comment with your review too. It helps us make this show better. Second, share this episode or any episode you have that you enjoy with a loved one or someone who needs to hear these things. You can share your episodes, your favorite episodes, right from our webpage at squadroom.net and from most podcast players. Also, there are some great companies who support the podcast and support you as well. Go to squadroom.net forward slash support to see exclusive deals from Signature Coins, Hard to Kill Fitness. On it, Ranger Up, Hardhead Veterans, and Audible, and of course, join our Facebook group and follow me on Instagram at the Squad Room. Special thanks to our sponsor for today's episode, Signature Coins. If you're looking for a challenge coin for your agency or specialty unit, check them out at signaturecoins.com and use the coupon code The Squad Room, all one word, for $50 off. That's where I went for my kilt coins, and they turned out fantastic. If you're shopping at Ranger Up or rangerup.com, don't forget to use the coupon code The Squad to get 10% off your order. And if you're looking for the best-fitting ballistic helmets that exceed NIJ standards and won't break the bank, check out hardheadveterans.com and use the coupon code SQUADROOM to get $20 off your helmet. To keep up to date uh, on our mailing list, or to, to keep up to date on our shows, join our mailing list. You can do that by going to our website at thesquadroom.net. And there's going to be a lot of stuff coming in 2021. This will be the last episode uh, for the year. We're taking a little break uh, going into the holidays and New Year. And we're coming back stronger and bigger and faster than ever. So stick, for, uh, look, uh, stick with us to be looking forward to some amazing things we have planned for 2021. All right, everybody stay safe out there. Take your time. Watch your calls. Watch each other's back. Take care of each other and stay safe. Okay, until next time, take care of each other and stay safe.